Oh, oh, you know what I didn't watch? What? You know what I didn't do at all before we started recording and I said I was going to do it is watch the WandaVision trailer. Oh, well then do it right do it right now. Okay. Oh, oh no. Shaving cream. There goes my right, light. Well, I'm going to watch it while you fix your problem. Fix my problem. <laughs> Which one? There's so many. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And it's another Friday night here in Studio V. Or is it Studio M? I think I changed names with my studios. I think it was Studio M. Studio M? Okay, thank you. Studio M. Hi, Emily. Hi. How are you tonight? <laughs> that was a very tentative hello. Tempting the fates with my musical neighbors on all three sides of me. Oh, I didn't know it was the ones above and below you that were doing it too. Yep. Oh, goodness. Just tempting fate. We'll see how it goes. So, everybody, thanks for joining us. We are getting ready to review The Incredible Hulk. And we will certainly get to that review in just a few moments. But first, something that we have wanted to do as part of this podcast, but because, as I'm sure you all are well aware, we've been recording this podcast in the middle of a global pandemic. So basically, most TV and film production have ceased during this time. So there hasn't been a whole lot of news coming out of Marvel Studios for the last several months. Black Widow and the upcoming movies got pushed, production on the shows got delayed, and that's pretty much all we heard. A lot of silence coming out of Marvel. Well, all of a sudden, in just the last three weeks, like since we last recorded, a ton of news has been coming out of Marvel. So all of a sudden, we went from famine to feast. And so with that, we now finally on our, what, fourth episode, have our first MCU news segment. And there's quite a bit of it. For starters, Emily, you finally saw the WandaVision trailer that dropped a couple weeks ago. I did. I just watched it about five Whoa. minutes ago. <laughs> what did you think? A bit of a mind blower, wasn't it? Obviously, I knew the WandaVision show was happening. I was thinking Wanda and her visions, like her psychic abilities... And I did not, for a single second until I saw the trailer, think of Vision the character. So now I'm just sort of sitting here going like, oh, of course, Wanda Vision. It's about Wanda and Vision. Duh. It's also a double entendre. I'm pretty sure that was deliberate. Wanda and her visions and Wanda and her vision. I'm so. also very confused because I thought Vision was dead. I thought the same thing. That's why it's very intriguing. But then again, we are talking about Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, who has the ability to manipulate people's thoughts and stuff going through their heads. Perhaps she's manipulating her own mind. Wasn't there something weird about Vision not being an actual living being, so maybe he can't die? But the stone was ripped out of his head, so... Mm -hmm. I might take that away. We may not have to wait a whole lot longer because the trailer indicates that it's coming soon, but it doesn't give an actual date. But I'm hearing through my sources that the show may drop as early as December. So we may only have a couple more months to wait before we see this. Going back to 
Black Panther in the wake of the death of Chadwick Boseman after they had gotten over their initial mourning. It sounds like Marvel Studios, they started talking about what to do with that part of the franchise, and there are lots of rumors running rampant that they are going to take a page from the comics and make Shuri the next Black Panther. None of that has been confirmed, but that's what I'm hearing they're talking about. There's precedent for that. This has happened in the comics, so it would be really interesting to see that happen in the films. I wonder if they would have to essentially rewrite the second Black Panther movie. Who knows how far into that they were. Well, I'm sure they were very far into it. Yeah, they'll probably have to rewrite most of it, because it sounds like from interviews with Ryan Coogler after Chadwick passed, it sounds like they were getting ready to get started. Now they're going to have to rewrite significant chunks of it. But again... This is all just rumor. I don't know if any of this is actually going to happen, but it's what a lot of people have been saying, and I think it makes sense, frankly. It's something that I would certainly be interested in seeing, but I have the feeling we're going to have a bit of a wait until we find out. Marvel also released new release dates for its upcoming films in light of all the COVID-19 stuff. Black Widow has now been pushed off to May 7th, 2021. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings will open, we think, on July 9th, 2021. And Eternals will debut on November the 5th, 2021. So Shang-Chi gets to leapfrog Eternals, because Shang-Chi was initially going to come out after Eternals. For whatever reason, they felt they could switch those. So hopefully those release dates actually stay. We'll have to see what the world looks like next summer. We're also hearing we may get our next new big MCU villain in Ant-Man 3 at some point down the road. There are some people speculating it could be Kang the Conqueror. There are some people thinking it could be Doctor Doom, which I kind of personally would love to see. I'm a big Fantastic Four fan. Again, that's just speculation, but that's what a lot of people have been talking about. Something a little more tangible, as in something that has been confirmed, we now have our She-Hulk for the She-Hulk Disney Plus series. Actress Tatiana Maslany has been cast as the attorney Jessica Walters, otherwise known as She-Hulk. Jessica Walters is Bruce Banner's cousin, and she's in an accident of some sort, and the only way to save her life is to get a blood transfusion from a relative. And surprise, surprise, the only relative who's available to give her a blood transfusion is her cousin Bruce, who happens to have gamma-irradiated rage monster blood flowing through his veins. So she ends up becoming a bit of what he is. So and he willingly, I mean, I haven't read the comics, you know I haven't. He willingly does that? Well, it was either that or watch his cousin die. He was a little reluctant, but it was the only way to save her life, so he did it. Kind of glad he did, because we get She-Hulk. She-Hulk is a really awesome character, is a favorite of mine. I have a couple close friends who absolutely adore She-Hulk. Devon, I hope you're listening. That's a shout out to you, buddy. So that is something we can look forward to hopefully in a couple years. The website We Got This Covered is reporting that Marvel is trying to bring Peggy Carter back into the MCU in the present day. That's kind of interesting news. That piqued my interest. Yeah, especially given what we know. Yeah, it gives one pause, because we know present day Peggy Carter is kind of dead. And... Uh, unless Steve went back in time in Endgame, lived out his life with Peggy. What if in that timeline, she's still around. Very possible. Time travel can be such a confusing thing when you get like alternate timelines and things like that, so it's hard for even me to wrap my head around that. But we'll see. It's Marvel. They can do whatever they want. News that I know you're excited to hear, Falcon and the Winter Soldier has resumed filming in Atlanta. 
They have, and I have seen every picture and watched every video from it. I sent you that video of uh, your boy, boy, Sebastian Stan, getting ready to rumble down there in Atlanta, didn't I? I have seen every angle of footage that anybody has. I've seen it all. I think we should designate you as our point person. You're going to be our Falcon and the Winter Soldier correspondent from here on out. I could see that, yeah. You should be. You've It'll got... be like, cut to Emily, and we'll put in some funny musical transition. I'll take a picture of me with my headphones and be like, yes, Mark, he is still on set. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you come back to record the podcast. You don't end up, you know, hanging out on the set all day or all week or all year. Or Get even a job like, down there or something. Might, I, <laughs> end up working for them. Mark, I'm moving to Atlanta. What? <laughs> Surprise. What else have we got? Apparently there is a Nick Fury series coming to Disney+. Plus. That's, I guess, not terribly surprising, but that will star Samuel L. Jackson, of course. And finally, news just broke a couple days ago that Canadian newcomer Iman Vellani will be playing Kamala Khan, otherwise known as Ms. Marvel, in the Disney Plus series of the same name. We've been told that not only will she star in the TV series, but Kevin Feige himself has said that there are plans to seed her in the movies in the future, so that will be very interesting. <laughs> I say, that's it for MCU news, it was actually quite a bit, but we'll have to see if more stuff keeps rolling out over the course of the next several weeks. We also have our own news now. Do you want to share it or should I share it? Oh, the news that you broke earlier today to me? Yes. Well, then I think you should break it to the audience here yourself. Take it away, Emily. We're on Apple Podcasts now. Woo! All Woo! right moving up in the world and we're still on soundcloud if you listen to us on soundcloud don't worry we're not going anywhere but now you have one more option in terms of finding we can do this all day and so. if enough people complain i might try and cut through the red tape on spotify but i've heard spotify is notoriously difficult so i need more than the people who wanted us on apple i need like double that if you do start to listen to us on apple Podcasts, please do review the podcast give it some stars and a comment or whatever I'm so bad at these like promo things, but that would help the podcast get noticed by more people. And then other people would have to sit here and laboriously go through every other movie with us. <laughs> and my real goal with this podcast is to have everyone watch all the movies and suffer through the terrible ones like we have to do. That's my true goal. But when it comes down to it, it's a labor of love on our part, but we would certainly appreciate it if y'all joined us wherever you see our podcast. Please give us a review. We hope it's a good review, but just give us a review. So on to the main event this week, The Incredible Hulk, which opened on June 13th, 2008, only a month after Iron Man opened up. And this was actually the only movie in the MCU that I did not see in the theater. I think I was just so hulked out, no pun intended, after the 2003 Ang Lee Hulk, which we'll talk about in just a moment. I think I just thought to myself, eh, I don't need to see another Hulk movie. That's probably why I skipped it. But I did see it a year or so later. Was this your first time seeing it this week, Emily? I remember the favelas and Edward Norton. Anything else about the movie? Anything else that happened in the movie that I saw this week? I don't remember any of that. I think maybe I just saw the trailer or I was maybe in the same room sitting on my phone as somebody else who watched it that's entirely possible. I have the feeling you wouldn't be alone I think this one flew under a lot of people's radar. The film stars Edward Norton, Liv Tyler, Tim Roth, Tim Blake Nelson, 
Ty Burrell and William Hurt. Screenplay by Zach Penn, who co-wrote X-Men 2, X-Men 3, and got a story credit for Avengers. Edward Norton himself actually rewrote almost the entire screenplay after he was cast as Bruce Banner, but apparently he was left uncredited and ultimately Marvel decided not to use most of his changes in edits. So there's been some speculation as to whether or not that was one of the things that contributed to him abandoning the role after the movie came out. The movie is directed by Louis Leterrier, who is probably best known for directing the first two Transporter movies with Jason Statham, as well as the 2010 remake of Clash of the Titans, Now You See Me, and the recently cancelled Netflix series The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. The cancellation of which I know upset quite a few friends of mine who were real fans of that show. Now You See Me is the movie with Jesse Eisenberg and the magicians, right? I think it was. And wasn't Mark Ruffalo in that too? Yeah, he was the cop. I really like that movie, but I just can't pull anything out of my brain about it right now except Jesse Eisenberg. I don't think I've actually seen it. I know of it. I think I've seen trailers for it and like bits and pieces of it, but I haven't actually seen it. Go back and add that to the to-watch pile. The ever-growing two-watch pile. The never-ending watch pile. The never-ending watch pile, that's right. At the box office, the film grossed $264.8 million on a budget of $150 million. To this date, it is the lowest grossing film of the MCU. It had a budget of $10 million more than Iron Man, and yet it made half the money, which is sort of a, a very dubious distinction. Some background on the movie. After Ang Lee's 2003 Hulk, which was much more of a psychological drama than a comic book movie, failed to wow at the box office or with audiences, Marvel Studios reacquired the rights to the character from Universal Studios, although Universal retained distribution rights, which is why this movie came out under their auspices. The producers wanted to go back to something that was more recognizable as the Hulk by audiences, and therefore they went with something that was like the comics, and more like the 1970s TV show with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, which was beloved by a lot of people. So, the movie opens up with a quick recap montage of the gamma radiation experiment that turned Bruce Banner into the Hulk. Uh, he injures General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross and his daughter, who also happens to be Banner's colleague and girlfriend, Betty. He flees. Ross pursues him after requisitioning a ton of ordnance and stuff from Stark Industries. The opening sequence of this film is very reminiscent of the opening title sequence of the 1970s TV show. The little sort of quick cuts and the pictures of him getting ready to irradiate himself in that big chair. I'm sure that was deliberate on the part of the producers, wanting people to remember that show that so many of them loved. And it's way different from, I mean, I know now we have the chance to look back and see 20 films in this cinematic universe, but it's way different from any of the other movies. Like, it looks different, it feels different, it is grittier. It kind of feels more like Venom mm -hmm. than it feels like all the other sort of clean-cut MCU movies. It feels like it's sort of outside of that. Well, Hulk has always lent itself well to almost like a horror genre. This is something we talked about before. Almost like a horror movie, because, you know, he's, in some ways, there are a lot of Frankenstein parallels, you know, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I think there are a lot of monster-slash-horror parallels, which is why it lends itself to a much darker tone. I also enjoyed something that I also don't think we see a lot in the other MCU movies, were those really nice, long, aerial shots. So, like, in the favelas in Brazil... Mm -hmm. When they're in Shenandoah, all of those nice, just wide, even in the clip that you showed me of the alternate opening in Antarctica, they look empty, but they're not empty because obviously there's something going on, but these big, wide 
no person shots. I feel like you don't see a ton of that in the other movies. If that was a good point you raised, it must be helicopter shots. And yeah, you don't see a whole lot of them in the other movies. I'm not sure why that is. Well, I think probably because this movie is basically about a man on the run. I think it lends itself well to that kind of cinematography because he's going from this place to this place and it's kind of neat to see those establishing shots. Maybe that was a, a choice on the part of the director and it's the one and only Marvel film he's ever made. So that would make sense. They do look beautifully. I know you were really impressed with the shot of the favela, and I agree, it looks really neat. So, five years later, Banner is hiding out in Brazil, and it's been about 158 days since he last turned into the Hulk. We see him working on various techniques to control his heart rate, because apparently he hulks out if he hits 200 beats per minute. And you didn't like this when I put it in the show notes, but I'm going to say it in the show anyway. You didn't have anything to say about me saying that Edward Norton looked like Benedict Cumberbatch? No, I didn't have anything to say about but that. But you did thought. apparently have a problem with me saying that that uh, Portuguese martial arts guy was like a Portuguese Mr. Miyagi. Not because of the looks obviously but because of the like oh it's about emotion and control and being at well i gotta say i haven't seen karate kid so i know what's in pop culture <gasps> oh. oh see this is i think my role in your life is to educate you on the beauty of 80s pop culture so you haven't seen the karate kid we have to correct that oversight. Mr. Miyagi, I love Pat Morita. I love Pat Morita, but I don't think he... Maybe in his prime he looked like that dude. Because that dude was pretty well cut. You know, he was doing all the weird stuff with his abs and so forth. I sort wasn't of talking spiritually. about the... Yeah, spiritually. Spiritually, he felt like the Portuguese Mr. Miyagi. Or the Brazilian, gotcha. I guess. Portuguese is the language. Brazil is the country. Brazilian Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> I understand. Okay. So, yeah, in a spiritual sense. Metaphorical sense. That makes sense. For those of you who know anything about old TV, I love the part where Bruce is channel surfing in his apartment and he stops on an old episode of The Courtship of Eddie's Father, which starred Bill Bixby. It's a show that ran in like late 60s and early 70s. Lots of nods to the now late Bill Bixby. And of course, we'll see Lou Ferrigno. Lots of nods and winks to all things related to the 70s TV show. So Bruce has a day job at a cola bottling plant and one day he cuts his finger on the job and a small amount of his blood ends up on one of the bottles of cola. In search of a cure for his condition, Banner has been anonymously communicating via the internet with someone known only as Mr. Blue. Banner sends Blue a sample of his blood. Blue tells Banner that he may be curable, but that Blue needs more data, which is locked up in the university where the accident occurred five years earlier. Now, that contaminated bottle of soda, unfortunately, finds its way into the hands of an elderly man, played by, of course, Stan Lee, making his second MCU cameo, and this man comes down with gamma sickness. Ross is then able to trace the soda to the plant in Brazil and sends a special forces team down to retrieve Banner, led by Emil Blonsky, played by Tim Roth, on loan from the Royal Marines. They break into Banner's apartment, but he escapes before they arrive. Blonsky's team pursues Banner through the favela to the bottling plant where he ultimately transforms into the Hulk and overpowers Blonsky's team before escaping. I like that Bruce has been in Brazil for almost half a year when we meet him and he is still dressed like a tourist like <laughs> even with his hood up and even with the hat he is so clearly an American of course those special ops guys are going to find you immediately and I guess again he's not I'll probably say this a million times he's not a fighter he's a scientist he's an academic you even see that in the rest of the movies 
with Mark Ruffalo as Hulk. The idea that he's not interested in fighting usually. Mm -hmm. But I just thought right. that was funny that it's like, you've been out there for five years. Ross reveals to Blonsky that Banner's gamma radiation experiment was part of an attempt to resurrect the super soldier program. The same one that, as we all know, created Captain America. Since this movie came out before Captain America the First Adventure, from the moviegoer's perspective at least, this is the first time we're hearing about the super soldier program. Banner was not told this. Instead, he was told that he was working on a project involving radiation resistance. But Banner was so sure he was onto something that he tested it on himself, and obviously it didn't go so well. Using Banner's work, the army apparently developed a promising super soldier serum, which Ross then proceeds to inject into Blonsky. This almost feels like a good lead-in to the next movie that we're reviewing, which is Iron Man 2, and to sort of the mass marketing of the Iron Man soldiers from Justin Hammer. Everyone is in the process of upstaging one dude trying to recreate what they've done on a sort of mass market level, not realizing that there's something special about each of them. So, so far it was Tony, Bruce, and Steve are the people that we've seen that have this something about them that makes them different. So Tony was doing Iron Man not totally for his own gain. I'd say there's maybe 30% of him is not for his own gain. And that 30% is his promise to Jensen. And then Bruce was trying to further science. Steve was picked because he was a good guy. And they were all followed by someone who wanted the opposite of that. So whether it was Red Skull, I guess you could say for Steve, like Red Skull and Zola for Steve, Justin Hammer for Tony, and Ross slash Emil for Bruce. In a strange sort of way, you could also extend that into Thor. It's Thor who's supposed to become the new king of Asgard, but it's Loki who wants the throne. There seems to be a theme of wanting and coveting and ultimately finding out that there's a good reason why these people shouldn't have it. Banner makes his way back to the University of Virginia. He meets with Stanley, a close friend and owner of a nearby pizzeria, and tells him everything that's been going on in the last five years. Posing as the delivery guy for Stanley, Banner makes his way up to his old lab, where he discovers that all the data regarding the experiment has vanished. While preparing to leave town, he's accidentally spotted by Betty. Later that night, she catches up to him when he's fleeing town. She hides Banner at her place and reveals to him that she saved the experiment data without telling her father with whom she's now estranged. Banner tells Betty of her dad's plans to extract and weaponize whatever it is in Banner that makes him the Hulk. We're not quite into the talking about General Ross a lot territory, but I always pictured Ross from my very limited knowledge, which is just him from Civil War. So that's pretty much the extent of my experience with him. But I always pictured him to be a relatively smart guy and I feel like I would have had my dudes all over that campus like as soon as I knew that Banner was out of Brazil or at least out of the city that they were in I would have been like oh Virginia let me go check up on Virginia it seems like Bruce has two or three days at least of being in the clear before Ross is like let me go check up on my kid. You know, my kid who had access to all of the data about this guy who can turn into a giant green rage monster. Especially considering it was so easy for him to get into the lab. Like, he just had to get the security guard with the pizza, and then he had to get the overworked academic with the pizza. In the comics and everything, he's pretty much, his whole raison d'etre is to stop the Hulk and stop Banner. He's obsessed with it. He's a Captain Ahab, obsessed with stopping this guy. And for those of you who read the comics, he goes so far as to turn himself into a Hulk, in this case, the Red Hulk, in order to stop Banner. He's just absolutely, positively consumed with stopping him. And I don't think we quite get that amount of obsession with William Hurts, but you do get enough of it with him sending his 
troops willy-nilly tanks and stuff across a college campus full of students to capture this one guy. Meanwhile, is like totally neglecting his daughter. It makes me wonder if that's how far gone he is. He doesn't even consider his daughter important enough of a, a piece of the picture anymore. It's just, it's, it's all banner. Is it just me, or do Bruce and Betty's reunion scenes, you know, after they meet each other at Stanley's, seem kind of short? Yeah, I was kind of waiting for like a big sit-down, heart-to-heart talk, and it never really happens. And that was something I felt was kind of missing. Her character is pretty one-dimensional. So I imagine that's part of it, that there's not a whole lot that they can do or that they wanted to do with the character. So any interaction with Bruce is going to be short-lived and, I don't know, vapid almost. She's not really the main point of the movie. And I wonder if maybe they weren't planning on having her around in the future anyway. Like if they had a further plan for any sort of storyline with Bruce that they just figured, well, we need her because she's in the comics and because she's relevant. But if we're not going to have her later, why invest a whole lot into her? I can sort of see that. It just seems this is the love of your life. The last time you saw her, you had injured her when you became this thing. And then you left town for five years. And this is the first time you're seeing her in five years. And she's clearly happy to see you. It just seems like they didn't have very much to say to each other after that. But they had both kind of moved on too like she had phil dunphy and he had that (laughs) cute brazilian girl at the bottling plant really he only went back to virginia because he was forced to go back anyway he would have probably continued to stay in brazil i imagine or moved on to another hiding spot but i guess he figured since brazil was burned for him and blue was pushing for more data, data he might as well go back and try yeah and i guess that's why he goes to stanley first instead of betty that would have been hard to do for all sorts of practical reasons given who her dad is and her being so close to the experiment he may not have wanted to put her in danger also betty's new boyfriend is the dad for Modern Family, and I cannot take him seriously for a single second in this entire movie. You know, I was going to save this for later on in the podcast, but I've been thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, Ty Burrell doesn't have a whole lot to say in this movie, but it doesn't matter, because every time I see him, I can't not think of anyone but Phil Dunphy. That's just how it is. I can't see him being anyone else, so it's like, oh, it's Phil Dunphy. No, it's Betty's boyfriend, but it's Phil Dunphy. But it's Phil Dunphy. (laughs) In our show notes, when we describe various characters and actors, we put the name so-and-so as so-and-so, and and we'll have little notes about what we thought about each character and so forth. For Ty Burrell, I just put a picture of him from the Modern Family episode where he's sitting on the bench with the not-a-real-man realtor sign, which was one of my absolute favorite episodes of that show. There's nothing else you need to know. Ty Burrell is Phil Dunphy. End of story. Ross's team attacks Banner while he and Betty are walking near the university campus. Blonsky, who's now been juiced up on this new super soldier serum, can be seen running faster than his men and doing all sorts of cool, jumpy parkour sort of stuff. The team corners Banner, and he, of course, hawks out. Another note on Ross and his Captain Ahab mentality about Banner is, you know that he will hulk out and destroy things. You saw that at the bottling plant. You saw it with his own daughter, that he's unreachable and dangerous. And yet you're driving tanks through a college campus and also walking the Hulk essentially in a floating walkway. The idea of de-escalation is just non-existent in his vocabulary because they don't even have the Hulk containment thing that they have in the first Avengers movie. They don't have anything like that. So how are you supposed to get the Hulk? Like, get period the period Hulk, period. How are you supposed to do that if every action that you take is ramping up to this giant green rage monster being unleashed in the Shenandoah Valley? Who's causing more destruction? 
the Hulk or General Ross? Think about that. At least when Hulk does something afterwards, he runs away. He's trying to get away. But Ross just trashes an entire college campus to get one guy. That you might not even be able to contain <laughs> because he's going to Hulk out. Good luck with that. So during the fight, Super Soldier Blonsky goes head-to-head -head with Hulk and gets in a good few licks without getting hurt. Hulk eventually drives off Ross's team, but Betty is injured in the process, so he carries her off to safety. So Hulk takes Betty off to this big cave that I never thought existed in Virginia, but they shot this whole movie in Canada, so I guess that's not surprising. Takes her off to this cave for her to recuperate. I thought this scene in the cave was a little cliche, but it worked well enough for me. I've never been the biggest fan of Liv Tyler's acting. I do kind of wish she had more to say and do in this movie, but she's kind of an adequate Fay Ray to Hulk's King Kong. I rather prefer the scene in the motel room that happens shortly thereafter, especially the nod to the purple stretchy pants had to come into play at some point. Oddly, they say very little, and it's just the haircut scene which culminates in them hopping into bed, getting ready to get it on, and then Banner realizes he can't do that because that'll get his heart rate up and he'll get too excited. Talk about a very cruel twist. I'm also trying to imagine for a second, because this is sort of pre-superhero, she may have heard about Iron Man, and I don't know how common knowledge it was that Cap was actually like a super soldier. I don't know if that's something well known in the universe besides the fact that he was just a well known publicity stunt essentially for the military. So this is pre-superhero. The Chitari haven't attacked New York or anything like that so life is still pretty normal for everybody and I'm trying to imagine despite Betty's one dimensionness how you're supposed to react to finding out that your ex is a giant green rage monster. <laughs> and that, like, you're kind of stuck with it until you get to this Mr. Blue guy and before you resolve the problem. And so it's just like, oh, well, I mean, we're here, I guess. This is fine. It's fine. He's a, he's a giant green rage monster, and yet I'm still strangely attracted to him, and I want to go to bed with him. And Imagining the outer rims of a universe full of superheroes is always really interesting because there are tons of people who just live regular lives, and Betty is one of them. And so it's like, how are you handling that? Do you go to therapy for that afterwards? Like, what's the, what are the healthcare bills like for that? Now that I think about it, of all the MCU movies, Betty Ross in this one might actually be sort of, like you said, the most kind of ordinary person of everyone. She comes to mind as being one of the most ordinary. Maybe that's notable for the very reasons that you stated. It's kind of nice to see sort of a snapshot of what the pre-superhero, pre-Battle of New York world is like. Normal people doing stuff that you and I do every day and just living their lives and all of a sudden, oh, my ex-boyfriend turns green when he gets ticked off. Surprise! With the help of a S.H.I.E.L.D. database, Ross's team figures out Mr. Blue's identity, cellular biologist Samuel Stearns. Stearns asks Banner to meet him in New York because he thinks he's found a cure using Banner's blood samples. Ross and Blonsky head for New York. My favorite line in the entire movie is that exchange between Betty and Bruce about the subway. I think the subway is probably quickest. Me in a metal tube deep underground with hundreds of people in the most aggressive city in the world. Right, let's get a cab. And then that cab ride turns out to be just a complete disaster. That might have been my favorite minute in the whole movie is from that interaction between the two of them all the way through the cab ride. I've been in some <laughs> cabs in New York and that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like yeah. you really are just putting your entire life in the hands of a crazy person. <laughs> they get you where you need to go and usually pretty quickly. Do you know what we forgot to do? Oh, the rank. We forgot to do the ranking. 
forgot to do the ranking. Do you want to do the ranking just like right here? Yeah, let's do it. No time just like the present, little, Emily. A little interlude? All right, I'll go first. We both have our MCU movies, all of the movies ranked somewhere. I've lost my Word document that has that on there. But this movie was always on my list of I either don't remember it or I haven't seen it. And so it didn't get to go in the ranking. So now it does. And I think it's definitely not in my bottom three. So I would say maybe 17 or 18. There have been 23 MCU movies to date. So yeah, I think that's fair. I hadn't seen the movie in a while when I rewatched it this week. It had been a few years. But it's not a bad movie. It's really not a bad movie. It's just that there are, in my opinion, probably about maybe 18 or so more movies in the MCU that are better than it. So I would probably rank this one. I might not have ranked it quite as high as you. It's probably somewhere in my bottom five. Somewhere between 19 and 23. Probably not the very bottom, but I might have to move Ant-Man and the Wasp up at least a little bit. There's some things they do in that movie that work for me. I think there's more in that movie that works on the whole than there are in this movie that works for me, if that makes any sense. Ant-Man and the Wasp had a higher workability score for me. I'd still say Hulk would go in my bottom five somewhere in my bottom five. I don't know exactly where, but it would be somewhere in my bottom five. The thing about Hulk and least favorite MCU movies is that I don't viscerally hate this movie. The movies that are in my bottom three, I can't stand. And this one I'm not that mad about. I don't think I would go watch it again, but I also don't hate it. So I think that's why it doesn't get put in that very bottom three. That's why it's sort of given a little bit of a wider berth. It's allowed to be closer to the 15 than it is to the 20. I think that this may be the most plot-driven movie in the entire MCU. It doesn't quite follow the same formula. We've been talking about the characters in this movie and they service the story in the most basic way possible I think but they don't have a whole lot to do one of the things that has made the MCU so successful over the years in my opinion is the way in which they're able to tell these exciting engaging stories with interesting characters that grow and change and make you feel something for them they make you care about them in this movie everyone is as we've said before pretty one-dimensional and so that's what differentiates it from a lot of the other MCU movies and it's one of the reasons why I think it is further down in my rankings than so many of the other ones all right, now with that little side quest out of the way. In the aftermath of the fight with Hulk, we discover that the serum is deforming Blonsky's skeleton and impairing his judgment. He gradually starts mutating. Cellular biologist Samuel Stearns reveals to Banner and Betty that he replicated Banner's blood samples with the intention of unleashing its limitless potential on the world of medicine. Banner, of course, wants to destroy the samples, but before they can, he's subdued by Blonsky and Ross's team, and he and Betty are taken into custody. Blonsky forces Stearns to inject him with Banner's blood in a crazed attempt to make himself like the Hulk. The combination of Ross's super soldier serum plus Banner's blood turns Blonsky into the Abomination, which is a big Hulk villain in the comics. He begins rampaging around Harlem. Realizing the Hulk is the only thing that can stop him, Banner hulks out and confronts the Abomination. And they fight, and Hulk eventually subdues him before fleeing. You know, I've seen this movie a few times now, granted it's been a while, but for some reason I don't remember Stearns being such an annoying little troll the first few times I saw it. Not too bright either, I mean, he's like deliberately and rather gleefully letting Banner hulk out in his tiny little lab in the middle of New York City and just doesn't bat an eye about it. I do like the one line from him when Blonsky puts his gun on him and he just goes, now what possibly could I have done to deserve such aggression? And it's like, I don't know, 
be you? <laughs> yeah, I, I was not terribly enamored of his character. He serves the plot in the most basic way possible, but that's about it. The fight in Harlem is a little chaotic, but it's good. I love the Hulk thunderclap putting out the fire on the chopper. I thought that was pretty cool. That was a nice touch. I do find it interesting that Abomination can still talk somewhat normally when Hulk is more, I guess, proto-human. Like, there's not a whole lot of language that Hulk has. So I wonder what that's about. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, he can basically talk normally while Hulk is, you know, Hulk smash, Hulk do this, Hulk angry. I wonder if there's something about the super soldier serum that Ross shoots him up with that allows the subject to keep some semblance of their higher brain functions, like speech. Yeah, I mean, I guess if it is anything like the super soldier serum that they used on Steve, it amplifies what's already there. Mm -hmm. So it amplified Blonsky's desperation to keep fighting and also amplified the existence of any sort of intelligence he might have i'm just sort of grasping at straws here whereas banner's thing was an accident yeah so at the fight in harlem you may remember that exchange between tony and bruce in avengers where tony's like you should come by stark tower sometime top 10 floors all r&d you'd love it it's Candyland." to which banner replies thanks but the last time i was in new york i kind of broke harlem i would like to submit for the record evidence a harlem getting broken was not bruce's fault he didn't start that ross and blonsky started that he just had to end it goes back to my comment who's actually causing more damage ross and blonsky or the hulk they always talking about how destructive the hulk is this is why he's got to be stopped but you're sowing even more chaos in his wake so a month later we see banner in a cabin in british columbia and he's undergoing what seems to be a controlled transformation into the hulk it's kind of suggesting that he's figured out some way to control the changes a bit where he can hulk out at will presumably like we see banner doing in avengers the i'm always angry line and of course the final scene of the movie while drowning his sorrows in a bar we see ross approached by none other than tony stark himself who tells general ross that he's putting a team together and that is the movie why tony and not fury i'm guessing they're probably trying to cement tony stark as like the main man in the mcu at this point they're trying to make him their guy i'd agree with you it sounds more like something that fury would do Especially considering plot-wise, Tony kind of gets kicked off the team before it even starts. (laughs) That's a good point. Afterwards, in Avengers, he doesn't seem terribly interested in putting a team together, so it does seem kind of odd that he would be, wow, hey, I'm totally on board with the Avengers initiative. Also, no cutscene at the end. Yeah, no post credit scene. I think that was still a relatively new phenomenon. I'm guessing they weren't thinking they needed it in every single movie. That changes really quick, obviously. Turns out they were wrong. So... This is the part we talk about characters and actors, and I already kind of went on my tirade about how I thought this was the most plot-driven movie in the MCU, and how the characters just seem to service the plot in the most basic manner possible. So I didn't have a whole lot to say about characters, but I guess we gotta go through them anyway. Edward Norton as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk. What do you think, Emily? I think I've only seen Edward Norton in Fight Club, besides seeing him in this movie. So I don't know a ton about him. I mean, I like him well enough. I like that Bruce Banner gives off the fact that he is 
book smart and capable, but that he's actually not a fighter. And I think that's one good thing that they keep between Norton and Ruffalo is really playing up the fact that Bruce isn't the one who's the fighter, it's the Hulk. Like, there's never a moment where you see Bruce himself fighting anybody. You see Tony. There are scenes where Tony is fighting with very limited tech. You know, you see other people do that same thing, but you never see Bruce involved unless he's doing science things or if he's the Hulk. Well, Infinity War, he's wearing the Hulkbuster because he has to. He needs the Hulk, but he, for the first time ever, he can't. That's probably the exception to the rule. But, I mean, I like Edward Norton. I think he was fine. Again, I'm probably going to say that about every character. It's like, yeah, they were fine. He did his job. I haven't seen a whole lot of Edward Norton's work. American History X is a fantastic film. He's amazing in that. That's probably the first thing I saw him in. But I can't remember a whole lot of other things I've seen him in. I'll say this for his banner. I've always gotten the impression Banner was kind of this scrawny-looking, kind of stereotypical nerd, thus making his transformation into the Hulk that much more stark. If that's true, Norton fits the part pretty well from that perspective, because we're not talking the bulked-up Edward Norton from the aforementioned American History X, per se. He plays a guy on the run more than capably, and that's probably the most complimentary thing I can say about him in this movie. I can't remember if I say this later on in my notes, so I'll just go ahead and say it now. I think one of the things that has made Edward Norton's Hulk slash Banner kind of forgettable over the years, it's just the mere fact that we've gotten used to seeing Mark Ruffalo play him for ages now, and we love him in that role. And he's had the role ever since, and it's just as simple as that. Liv Tyler as Betty Ross. We talked about her a little bit earlier, and I talked about how I've never been terribly wowed by her acting prowess. She spends most of the movie just kind of being there. Sadly, like a lot of other women characters in the MCU, and everywhere else for that matter, unfortunately, she's mostly window dressing, and she's there to play second fiddle to Banner. And especially because Bruce moves pretty quick to set his eyes on Natasha. Who is no Betty Ross. <laughs> and even in this movie in particular, yeah, he's been on the run for five years, but he sets his eyes on that girl at the bottling plant and has probably set his eyes on other girls. Like, I don't want to talk about Bruce being promiscuous or anything. But, it, you know, it just seems like the way they've built up the character that Betty's just not that important as a character to him. And I don't know if that's part of the character they're building around Bruce or if they just wanted to put her in to appease the fans and then cut her out and be done with it. Betty Ross is in the comics, so I guess they felt they needed to have her as a love interest of some sort. I'm not saying it's all fan service, but I guess it just made sense to have her in that role. Whether they intended her to be a big part of it, I don't know, but you know, some studio exec figured, okay, we need to have a love interest. Let's just put Betty Ross in. Let's get Liv Tyler in. They got what they got. Also, Liv Tyler reminds me of Jennifer Garner, except I like Jennifer Garner a whole lot better. There's a similarity between the two, and I'm not really sure what it is. I think Jennifer Garner is a better actor. It's the brown hair, it's the soft-spoken, you know, nice, pleasant voice, I think. Jennifer Garner, I can't believe I'm invoking this movie. I hate it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. The 2003 Daredevil film with her and Ben Affleck. I thought she was actually a more than halfway decent Electra. That doesn't sound like high praise, but given how horrible I thought that movie was, it actually is. William Hurt making his first appearance as General Ross. I've seen William Hurt in a lot of things. 
and it's the same with every movie he's in. I think he's one of the most wooden actors in the world. He's a little bit better in this because he gets to play some of that, the obsessive rage that we were talking about, which we tend to associate with General Ross in the comics. But for the most part, like a lot of other people in this movie, I think he's pretty two-dimensional. I definitely like his character better in Civil War. I hate what he stands for in this movie and in Civil War, but... I think the character comes across better. And maybe that's just because essentially Ross grows up and I think his whole Banner's body belongs to the U.S. Army is the very beginning of him saying all superheroes belong to the U.S. Army and segueing from Bruce to Stark to the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D. to the Sokovian Accords. So I think the character gets to develop a tiny bit more. But he is super one-dimensional in this movie. Like, there's not a whole lot going on. And none of what he does really makes sense. But you can kind of see it makes sense in Civil War. In William Hurt's first scene as General Ross in Civil War, if you remember, when he gets the team together to explain the Accords to him, he kind of starts off by talking about what he's been up to. And he's like, yeah, my heart started to give out and I kind of started to relax a bit. And I'm kind of glad I did improve my golf game. And I think they put that in there to demonstrate that he's a little calmer now than he was back back in the Hulk days, but when it comes down to it, he's still kind of got that dogged determination. It's just a little more nuanced now. Tim Roth as Emil Blonsky, the Abomination. I like Tim Roth a lot, especially when he's playing sadistic bad guys. You get to see some of that here. It's mostly him stewing about how much he wants to fight the Hulk, but he does it well. I really liked him. I think he doesn't quite give off sadistic bad guy until he fully turns into the abomination but i really i thought he was fine i thought he played off just a dude who wants to get in a fight and i don't think he really cares where that fight comes from like they said in the beginning he's on loan he doesn't really have a ton tying him to general ross but once he realized there's like a fun interesting fight involved and then he can sort of make himself even more of a fighter by the super soldier serum and all that stuff. I really liked it. And I really liked Abomination. Again, I said earlier, it gives off like Venom vibes. And I really liked Venom. But the whole having an alter ego inside of you, that's kind of how Venom is too. I don't have a whole lot to say about Tim Blake, Nelson as Samuel Stearns. The character was kind of annoying. We already talked about Ty Burrell as Leonard Sampson. He's Phil Dunphy. There's nothing else you can do about it. He's trapped there forever. I don't have a whole lot to say about music in this one. Craig Armstrong's score is it's all right. It's nothing terribly memorable. I like how it makes occasional use of the theme from the Incredible Hulk TV show, which I would start humming, if not, once again, for the fact that I don't want us getting a cease and desist letter slapped on us by ASCAP or whoever owns the rights to that piece of music. But if you're a fan of the old TV show, you recognize it. I think also because this movie came right after Iron Man, what we talked about in the Iron Man episode is there not being any defining motif or theme or melody or anything to go with either of these two characters yet. I noticed that too. Like I said, I've got the score and I've played it a bunch of times. It's action music for a superhero movie and there's no particular theme, no leitmotif. It's none that I can recognize. It's pretty generic. So there we have it, folks. Incredible Hulk. I think we ended up having more to say about this movie than we thought we would. We were a little worried that it might just be us staring at each other looking at a blank show notes document. This is one of the reasons I was so excited we had so much Marvel news. I figured the Marvel news would be longer than the review, but that turned out not to be the case. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. We will be back for our review of Iron Man 2, probably in about three or four weeks. 
Emily's going to be taking some time off to take care of some stuff. I don't know if that will factor into our timetable, so it may take a little longer to get our next episode out, but you will definitely hear from us in three or four weeks. Until then, thanks for joining us. Have a good night, everyone. See you later.